0: 12, and I'm going to invite you uh, to turn there. We've been, um, we've been out of John for several weeks as we have been, um, we have been uh, celebrating Advent and Christ's coming. We're going to get back into the, the book of John. So I, I just want to remind you about what's happening um, in the book of John. Jesus is moving toward um, his crucifixion. Um, in chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, we have the moment where Jesus' um, Jesus's feet are anointed. Um, and then, uh, uh, or Mary anoints Jesus and, 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 uh, with really expensive ointment. We talked about that. Um, and then we talked about the triumphant em- entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem um, to be crucified. In chapter 12 and verse 37, we pick up with Jesus' um looking at uh the people that he is encountering and John gives us a little bit of commentary this is a little bit different normally what happens is Jesus will say something and then John will provide us with commentary about why Jesus said that in this case John actually provides some commentary and then leads into what Jesus has to say this is a little bit different Um, in chapter, we're in uh, John chapter 12 and verse 37. Uh, though Jesus, though he had done so many things before them, this is the people of Israel, the religious leaders that are all gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And he quotes Isaiah 53:1. And 6.10, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, he's talking about God, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Um, Throughout the Gospel of John, John has put signs and belief together. Often Jesus does a sign and we read, and some or many believed in him. In chapter 2, verse 11, verse 23, chapter 7. But then there are also along the way those who see the signs and either ask for more signs um, or ask for more specific instructions about what the sign means. Um, so, Jesus will do something and they say, well, that's a good sign, but we're looking for a specific set of signs. We're, we're looking for you to do a very specific set of things in order for us to believe. So, um, if you could go ahead and do those things, that would be great. Um, we had a friend, um, when, when uh, Nicole and I were um, really newlyweds and new in the ministry, we had a, a single friend, a, a single lady who was uh, one of our friends, who really wanted to, she wanted to find a husband. Um, and she had the most extensive list of extraordinary things for a man to be in order for her husband to be what, she, I mean, it was like he had to be literally the perfect male. Like, like uh, you know, he had to be extraordinary. Um, and, and I remember kind of listening to her talk about what she wanted from a guy and sat there and went, first of all, my first response was, boy, I'm glad Nicole didn't have this list. And then, and then my, my second response was, uh, how will she, when she falls in love with somebody that doesn't fit in the list, will the list go or will the guy go? Now, thankfully the list went. Um, She found somebody. She fell in love with him. They got married. They have kids. They're living happily together. Um, I don't know that he meets more than five or six of the 35 points. (laughs) He's a great guy they're together. There's, you know, have the marriage problems with their problems. So often when we, when we look at what God is going to do, right, we're looking for what God, what we want God to do. We have our list of things that we want God to do. We, we have the criteria and the plans and, and if he does those things, then we will believe. And John's point as he's progressing through this is kind of like the people that come to God with their expectations of what Messiah is going to be like, what Christ is going to be like, what God does is never going to satisfy them. It's never going to meet their criteria. Now, it's interesting because Luke also deals with this, but he deals with it in a different situation. He deals with a story that he tells about a, a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus who die. And Lazarus is, is leaning against Abraham. It's an interesting image. Um, and the rich man wakes up and he's being tortured by flame. And he asks for Lazarus to give him a drink of water and a, or asks Abraham to give him a drink of water. Abraham says, no. Then he says, could you please send Lazarus back to my brothers? Because if my brothers knew what this was like, the suffering that I was in, then they would believe. And Abraham says it, it wouldn't matter if Moses and Elijah went back. They're just not going to believe. They're not going to accept, just like you. It's kind of a same point. They're just, there's some people that are looking for God to do such a specific thing, and the reason they do that often is because um, they don't believe that, they, they don't want to believe. They want to justify their belief. Um, for, for John, What's interesting is, and I've mentioned this before, but it's been a while, for John, the lack of belief, the lack of understanding of Jesus's messianic signs is actually itself a messianic sign. John John basically says, look, it is the fact that the religious people rejected Jesus that tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. It's one of the pieces of it, which is an interesting perspective. Because normally what we want is we want confirmation from whoever is the expert in this particular uh, subject matter. Um, but then we kind of decide who our experts are going to be. I was having a conversation with somebody, um, not in the church, um, a couple weeks ago about something in the book of Kings. Now, Those of you that have been with me on this whole PhD thing, you know my dissertation is about the book of Kings. And they were arguing with me about this because somebody they knew had an opinion that they liked more than mine. And so um, they were like, well, you must be wrong. I'm like, well, does your friend, has your? I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking a guy, he could know something that I don't know. Is there a resource I could rely upon? No, he found it by himself. Okay. So you're basically saying, I wasted my time. I should have just hung out with your buddy. I could have gotten a degree from him. And, and we, we tend to look for experts that are going to confirm our ideas, don't we? Like, I mean, all you have to do is watch the news to see that. If you watch a, one network, they have a set of experts who are absolutely authoritative on their point of view. And then if you watch another network, they have a set of experts that are absolutely authoritative on their point of view. And the rest of us are sitting there going... And how often do we just choose the experts we like? We just go over this is good. This is what's going on in the world that Jesus is in. And John says, look, he says, those those the people that refuse to believe, the experts, the fact that the experts reject Jesus, that should be worth paying attention to. Um, he says and the reason that they're rejecting Jesus in chapter in chapter twelve and verse forty one, John again before Jesus starts talking, John is going to give us a commentary on why they are rejecting Jesus. He says it is because, um, in verse forty verse two, 42, verse 42, many even of the authorities believed him believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess, so they would not be put out of the synagogues. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, we know for a fact, earlier in the book of John, there was a blind man who was healed by Jesus, and the Pharisees put him and his parents out of the synagogue because he dared to be healed, right? Right? So there's a fear among a a lot of the the people who are seeing Jesus. They're rejecting, they're coming up with reasons to reject Jesus' signs because that way they can... They can kind of sort of believe in Jesus just in case he turns out to be the Messiah. They get kind of the Messiah in their back pocket just in case. But at the same time, they're able to keep public face with the Pharisees and stay in the synagogue. And isn't it better that, that we're able to stay in the synagogue? I mean, we could, I mean, if Jesus works out, it's great. But in the meantime, we can just kind of hang out in this group. We don't get thrown out. We don't get ostracized. We still get all the secret handshakes and everything that's going on. We're not losing out. And this was becoming a problem... Uh, for the Christians that John is writing to. And remember, John is writing to the second and third generation of Christians toward the end of the first century. And the issue for them was not the synagogue. The issue for them was that they were, for the most part, Gentiles or blended Jew and Gentile congregations. And the glory of man that they were concerned about was the glory of the Roman Empire. See, during this time period, um, the emperor, Domitianus, or Domitian, was one of the very first ones to just be very openly bold-faced about he wanted to be worshipped as a god in his life. Now, his, his father, um, when his father was dying, um, as he lay on his deathbed dying, he, he looked up in the sky and he said, I, I feel like I'm becoming a god. And his brother Titus couldn't really care less. Titus was a rough-and-tumble soldier. He was a warrior. He, he wanted to fight. But Domitianus, Domitian, he wanted to be revered as a god. Now in Rome, you couldn't revere him as a God. He couldn't be treated as a God, couldn't be treated as a king. There were rules. You had to wait until you died, and your star appeared and a bunch of other stuff. But in the Eastern Empire, in what is uh, Anatolia, Asia Minor, what is today Turkey, um, in Syria, there kings were routinely worshipped as gods. And so Domitianus had had all kinds of, he, had, he, had, he didn't set them up on, uh, how do I put this? He didn't do it himself. What happened was, when people came to him and said, we'd really like to set up a temple and worship you as a god, Domitian would go, oh, I just couldn't accept that. okay. And they would set up statues of Domitian and they would make sacrifices to him as a god. Well, that was required for good civic duty in those cities. When you were in one of those cities like Ephesus or or Pergamum, Um, and there was an altar set up to Domitian, it was understood that if you were going to participate in the affairs of that city, you would go to the altar of the divine Caesar, and you would make just a a little offering, just a tiny bit, a little bit of incense on an altar or something like that, and just just say a quick prayer to Domitian to help you out with your stuff. And John's writing to a group of Christians who live in that world. Who maybe their private lives, they want to believe in Jesus, they want to do the Jesus thing. But they want to maintain their public persona in the public square. And so, um, you know, they just very casually as they walk by, fling a little incense. Make sure Domitian's happy. This would become a problem within a century or two. During the persecutions, the real great persecutions under the emperor Diocletian, um, who actually uh, claimed to be a god. That was like he, he was his thing. Um, Diocletian would actually, um, he required Christian priests and pastors to, to um, bring out their sacred scriptures, their, their biblical texts, and burn them in public to show their loyalty to the emperor. And there was a whole group of, of religious leaders, Christian leaders, who did it. They based it on the argument, well, it's more important that I stay alive and minister to people than that I stay true to the word of God. So I'll go ahead and burn the, these things. And by the way, we're not talking about, you know, Bibles printed on cheap text, okay? We're, we're, we're not talking about, you can go to the Dollar Tree and get yourself a, a King Jim Bible, easy, all right? There's usually a lot of typos in those Bibles at the Dollar Tree. You don't want to get them. Um, buy those, too many of those. But you can get an easy, you can get a Bible cheap. You can get it for a dollar. People are giving, I mean, I mean uh, where, <laughs> where's Carl? Carl will hand you one. Carl is a Gideon. He's got tons of them. He'll just give them to you. They're in the garage. Not a problem. You can get a Bible today. But in those days, it was expensive. I did the math. In order to produce a full copy of the whole scripture, in the first century, it was over $100,000 worth of work. That's why there aren't a lot of full Bibles from those days. It was, a, it was an expensive thing. But even a few pages, just a copy of maybe Paul's epistles, might might cost you the equivalent of like six months worth of work. And these priests and, and, pro, and, and, and pastors, they they're being... They're being brought before the magistrates, and they're handing these things over, which probably the community had paid for. People had sacrificed to get that copy made. It's one of the reasons there are so few early fragments of uh, the, the scriptures. Um, eventually, uh, that resolves, and there's a whole thing with Constantine I won't get into about that, but isn't it interesting that hypocrisy in their day was backwards from the way that we treat hypocrisy today? How do we view a Christian hypocrite today? Well, a Christian hypocrite is somebody who's a Christian up front, and they're respected, and they go to church, and they wear a suit and tie, and they're a deacon and everything, but in, behind the scenes, they're a drunkard, adulterer, problem maker, liar, cheater. They're whooping on their wives, whatever they're doing. That's how we view hypocrisy. that The public Christian persona and the private debauchery. It's interesting that in John's day, it was, back, it was the other way around. There were these people who believed in private, but in public, they maintained the different persona, a a secular persona. I think, by the way, we're, we're moving toward that today. We're getting a lot more of keep your faith in the closet. Other personal decisions can be out of the closet, but your faith has to be inside one. Don't talk about your faith. Don't talk about being a Christian. Don't keep that out of the conversation. See, John distinguishes a belief that does not result in a public declaration, a public confession, from true belief. He says, as long as your belief can be hedged, as as, as long as you're leaving yourself an out, pragmatically saying, well, this is for the good of everybody, Right, and 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 we 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 legitimize stuff all the time, don't we? We make decisions. We're like, okay, yeah, I know. I remember. I remember buying my very first car from a dealership. Now, the first car that I bought um, was a 1987 two-door Ford Tempo with a pink racing stripe. <laughs> oh yeah, that baby was awesome. Um, the transmission was gone. The auto transmi- automatic transmission was gone, so I had to manually downshift at every stop sign. You ever tried to manually downshift a running automatic transmission? When when we finally pulled the transmission out, it had just literally fallen apart. There was just nothing there. But the first time I drove that car to a dealership in Franklin, Massachusetts, where I had lined up a 1989 Ford Escort hatchback. Yeah, also known as the drug runner. That was what we called it. Uh, Because I got stopped more times for going slightly over the speed limit in that thing because it just looked like I was transporting things. Um, And it didn't help that my entire back of my hatchback was full of crushed Mountain Dew bottles because I was in college. Um, Anyway, uh, I went to get this car and my dad says to me, he says, now, the the salesman, he's going to ask you for a couple hundred bucks in cash. And I went, eh? I'm not going to name the name of the dealership. Let's just say that it ended with a a vowel. So there was indication that there might be some miscreancy going on with the ownership. Um, And uh, he says, he's going to ask you for a couple hundred dollars in cash. Just have it in an envelope with no name on it or anything and slide it across the table with him. Don't say anything. Now, I'm 19. Okay, great, whatever. It was only later that I realized that what had actually happened was that I had paid him under the table so that he could undermarket the price and get me a deal, rip off his bosses. That's really what happened. Now, if you work for a car dealership with the last name ends in a vowel, probably not a good idea to rip off your bosses. You will wind up um, with cinder block shoes jumping off, a, a, a jumping off of a, a, a bridge in the worst case of suicide we've ever seen. Um, it, it, it dawned on me later on, I said to my dad, I went, I went did, did we do something deceitful? Now, my dad didn't really think about it. All right, he it it was just the way, and he said, That's just the way business is done. Now, keep in mind, my dad grew up in a town, he had three great uncles. One was a mob hitman, I'm not making that up. Um, One was the chief of police, I'm not making that up. And one was the county medical examiner, I'm not making that up. All right, Uh, I am not. Making that up, you can look up John DeVitro. He most definitely was the chief of police. Mario DeVitro served time in prison for contracting in Florida. Um, people said, "Is that a conflict of interest?" Not in my family. All right, but uh, my family was the white sheep of the family. Um, we we left and became Christians. Uh, but the this this was just the way that business was done, and it it, it rubbed me the wrong way that that there's a there's there's things we don't think are that big of a deal, right? It's just the way life is. John says, your faith, your belief, and your public confession have to line up. Now, here's where John goes. Look at what Jesus says in chapter, in verse 44. Jesus cried out. So John has introduced, this is the world that they're in. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So what is he saying? He's saying, all you people that are claiming to be faithful Jews around me, to be serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to believe me is to believe the one who sent me, and guess who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. Have you ever thought about what the word glory means? It is glory. It is what light produces around someone. That's why when we in movies, we have an angel show up. What do they do? Right? Spotlight and all that stuff. That's glory. That's glory. He says, I've come into the world as a light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He says, "You're looking at the glory of man. You don't understand the difference between the glory of man and the glory of God. You've got them confused. You can't tell the difference." I recently bought a Windows machine. <laughs> um, I bought a Windows laptop because I, I, I and and just to you know to learn Windows because I. Didn't have anything else to do. All right. So um, I bought this Windows machine and I bought this Windows laptop. It's not the greatest laptop I've ever bought. I mean, was, they, I could have spent thousands and thousands of dollars on one. I didn't want to. I spent like 200 bucks. Right. So I get this laptop and I put it on my desk and I turn the brightness all the way up. I'm like this seems really dim. So then I open my laptop, my MacBook up. Ooh! Oh! what is going on here? The difference, I only realize the difference when I have them next to each other. After a while, the Windows machine, you kind of get used to it being dim. You don't really think about it until you open that laptop again. And that you realize, whoa, there could be a lot more brightness. Now, MacBook was a lot more expensive than the Windows machine. Different kind of lighting technology, all this stuff. Not knocking Windows all right, any more than I normally do. But the reality is, we tend to think that man's glory is as good as it gets. And we're robbing ourselves of the true brightness of the glory of God when we come all the way over to Jesus. He says, if anyone hears my words, verse 47, and does not keep them, I'm not going to judge him. I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word, he has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. Isn't it extraordinary that Jesus says, I don't need to judge you. I don't need to stand here and tell you everything you're doing is wrong. I, I, I don't need to give you a, a set of tools and a, or a bag of tools and a set of rules for you to be a good Christian. All you have to do is look at the light. And you will be able to see the darkness. All you need is to be exposed to the light one time for a while. And you will recognize just how dark the glory of man was. How do we justify taking our own authority over the authority of Christ? Because, I mean, the church has been doing it for a long time. There are lots of examples of this over church history. How do we justify taking our authority over the authority of Christ? If we can just get far enough away from the brightness. What did John say in his first epistle? He who walks in the light, right? He says, but if you can get far enough from the light, then the dimness feels like brightness and that's enough. It makes you happy. It satisfies you. It gives you the religious warm fuzzies. Uh, When I was a kid, my dad used to torture us by having us watch the Catholic Mass on TV in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Um, And there was a priest. um, I always thought it was weird that they were talking to a studio that was completely empty, but um, there was a priest and he had his robes. Um, There's a reason I don't wear robes. There's two stories I'll tell you about that. Um, and he kept talking about what Jesus wants to give you. He, he, he started, he was giving his children's sermon and he takes out this fur ball. It was a, uh, like a pom pom or something with eyes on it. It was freaky. And he goes, this is my warm fuzzy. I remember the tone of voice that he said it in. This is my warm fuzzy. You know, sometimes when you struggle with your faith, God wants you to take a hold of your warm fuzzy. So I keep my warm fuzzy in my pocket. He reached inside his robe and he put it inside his pocket and kept his hand inside of his robe the rest of the speech. You're wondering why I was weirded out by this. He goes, and so when I am struggling, I just reach in my pocket, rub my warm fuzzy. I'm like five and I'm like, and no offense to those of you that that have warm memories of the Catholic church, but I was like five. I'm like, I am never going to be Catholic. I do not know what's going on with this dude. The other story real quick, this has nothing to do with it. The other story was we were at a wedding in Connecticut and the priest was, I'm not kidding. He was wearing his robe and a pair of shorts and a pair of Teva sandals. Cause on, he was on his way to the beach or something after this wedding, he kept reaching inside of his uniform and doing this. I no idea what he was doing, but I was like, I'm like, this dude wants to leave. Can we just move along? We like, he wants to get out of here. I was like, just say, I do move on. I mean, he just, he was like marriages and he would come out and he would talk and then he'd go just something that we, I'm like, he's like doing calisthenics. I don't know. It has nothing to do with it. Anyway, um. Uh, When our faith is defined by warm fuzzies, by things that we can grab a hold of and we can say, this is what it means to believe in Jesus. We're walking in dim darkness, living in the glory of man. That's not what we're called to. We are called to live in the glory of Christ. And that means we have to take what we think Are our priorities, and set them aside and take what he says and make it our focus. That's what it means to confess Jesus in public. That's why when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a weird thing that we do. When you are ready to tell the world, I have taken a private faith and made it a public faith, it is all the way through me I am following Jesus with everything I am. We take you and we try to drown you. We put you in a tank of water and we put you under and we pull you out. We bury you in the likeness of his death and we raise you in the likeness of his life so that you can publicly see what is actually happening to you. You are being completely and utterly devoted to Christ. You're taking something that's in your heart and you're confessing it with your mouth. Everything through and through is Christ. Now, does that mean we all maintain that after we've been baptized? Negatory. But in that moment, we are declaring to the world, we are publicly saying, I want to live fully immersed in the glory of the resurrected Christ. How do we respond to the glory of Christ? Do we fit him into our warm fuzzies? Put him in our pockets? Or do we let him be the magnificent, extraordinary, unorthodox, sometimes confusing, paradoxical mystery that he is indeed. And revel in the glory of the Son of God. Buried, raised ruling and returning soon, Jesus Christ. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, we want to be in your glory Not in the glow of human achievement. Not in the the glow of of human success. Not in the glow of of our own abilities. But that we want to take all of those abilities. All of that success. All of those things that you give to us. Acknowledge that they come from you. Pour them out to you. And live in your glory. We live in a world where our faith is being deprecated every day. We're being told it's not important. We're being told to keep it to ourselves. We're, we're, we're being lumped with hate mongers and and, and and bigots and being told that we fall in that camp if we declare our loyalty to Christ. Help us to love and speak and minister solely through his glory and honor. May your glory shine in your church that others might meet you, come to faith in you, and walk with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers and sisters,